Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Good morning. Hope everyone is well. Just a reminder uh, to let us know, know that you're listening is, uh, by heading over to bgcovenant.org slash connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, uh, we've been in person at the last or online. Weeks. What has been Thanks known as the fruits of the Spirit, it's a passage found in Galatians. Um, but we take a look at these gifts, or sorry, these fruits of the Spirit, and kind of what does this mean for Christian virtue? How is it that the Christian ought to, to live? And this morning, we're going to kind of framework it a little differently, true to the scriptures, but maybe a little different than what we're like used to. This seems to be a season of celebration, right? Gift giving, right? I mean, you know, there's birthdays happening. Uh, you know, I actually just had a graduation party. I just finished my master's degree. I had a great graduation party yesterday. Even though I told people, I know, thank you. I wasn't really intending for your applause, but thank you. Um, even though I told people, don't bring anything, people still brought me gifts. I don't know why. To celebrate me, I get it. Uh, but we, we give gifts for all kinds of different reasons. But one reason that we don't give gifts is to get something in return, right? That's poor form. You don't give a gift expecting that someone will kind of, you know, help you out later, right? That's not kosher. However, it is kosher to grandparents. Grandparents give gifts unabashedly with strings attached to their grandchildren. Grandparents give gifts to the grandchildren because they want absolutely for their grandchildren to fall more in love with them. And they have no qualms. They are not worried about their grandchildren becoming spoiled. If your parents, you're like, Grandma, Grandpa, stop giving so many gifts to my grandkids, they're becoming spoiled. And Grandma and Grandpa are like, I don't care because I want them, when, the, I, when I walk in the room, I want their face to light up. I want them to come running to me with all the hugs and kisses, and I want them to be expecting that I have more gifts to lavish upon them. And they have no problem giving gifts, expecting that adoration in return. Well, as we look at kind of the fruits of the Spirit, they're fruits of the Spirit. These fruits are things that the Spirit, that the Spirit gives to us to do something with. The ancient concept of gift giving, all right, when the New Testament texts were written, the, the concept of gift giving was very different than it is today. For us, gift giving it must be unconditional, right? No strings attached. But that wasn't true then. In fact, when emperors would kind of conquer a city, they would come in and throw money out and food out to kind of their new subjects in order to win over their loyalty, to, live, uh, to win over their service, that they would then become faithful subjects to the new emperor. And when we hear this word grace, yes, it does mean unmerited favor. God's salvation comes to us not by anything that we've done. And yet, there is something attached. There's an expectation that we would, in turn, love God. That's why as we've been kind of, a, kind of a parallel text we've been looking to to Galatians 5, it's been John 15, Jesus can say, hey, if you're my friends, you'll obey my commands. Because he's saying, hey, if you love me, then you will serve and you will do what I command you to do. And to them, that there was no conflict of interest there because grace was a matter of you give gifts in order to win over someone's love and affection and loyalty, just like grandparents do to their grandchildren. So what does this have to do with the fruits of the Spirit? Well, we'll kind of get into that here in a minute, but let's kind of remind ourselves of the text that we've been taking a look at over the last couple of weeks. 
Paul writes in Galatians, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. For those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at the last two fruits, gentleness and self-control. And kind of baked into this is concept of, of gift giving. And also having in mind that those who bear these fruits crucify their passions and desires. Hopefully this will make sense here at the end. Now, Christian virtue are not, are not just adjectives. The New Testament writers, while they wrote in the time period of Aristotle and Plato, who wrote prolifically about virtue and how to live a virtuous life, the New Testament authors didn't write about virtue in the same sort of way. You know, these were not things that you just put on. These were not characteristics that you just adopted. They were actually things that you possessed. So I've got a pen right here, right? We would describe this pen as being black and plastic. That's how you describe it. But the pen itself is a thing. The Christian is not to be described as gentle, patient, love, joy, peace, but rather acknowledges that God has given us love, joy, peace, patience. And we, in turn, then get to give it to others. The forms of the Greek words here are not adjectives. They're nouns. They're things that we possess, and we then get to give to other people. So as you look at gentleness and self-control, we're wondering this morning, how do we give gentleness and self-control to others? How do we receive these gifts from God, and how do we give gentleness and self-control to others that it benefits them? That's what we're kind of wrestling with this morning. This morning, I want to kind of get below the surface a little bit of why do we possess these gifts, and what does it look like to give them away? So gentleness. Gentleness is opposed to anger, aggression, frustration. Like, think about like, okay, what is the opposite of a gentle response? It's just that. It's a harsh word. You know, it's coming down on someone. It's, it's responding or acting out in anger or aggression towards someone. It's being rough. Gentleness has to do with justice. When we experience injustice in our life, what is our response? Are we angry and aggressive, or are we gentle in our response to injustice? And when I say the word injustice, I mean the big injustices, you know, the, the, the big kind of global ones. We can talk about um, racial inequality. Uh, we can talk about right to life. Uh, we can talk about human trafficking. We can talk about any of the big, big injustices uh, that we can address. Marginalized people, people who uh, suffer in all uh, forms and ways throughout our world and in our community. But then there's also the in-my-world injustices, ways that I'm wronged. My boss overlooks me for that promotion. I don't have uh, the credit or recognition that I think I deserve or am owed. Or my spouse continues to load the dishwasher in the way that is just not right, you know? Those sort of things that just kind of really irritate you. And injustice has to do when, when things are not right in the world. And some of these are objective. Yep. This is not the way it ought to be, and some of it is very personal. This is the way I don't think it should be. And we feel the injustice. We feel like the world is not right. And then it's how is it that we respond to the people in our society around us when there is injustice? The scriptures kind of give us a little bit of a, you could say, um, kind of bumpers on the lane of how is it that we kind of deal with injustice. 
On one hand, we acknowledge this. It says in Psalm, the Lord says in Psalm 75 too, this is the Lord speaking. The Lord says, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all of its inhabitants, it is I who keep its pillars steady. That from beginning to end, from all of time, it is not you and I that are in control. We don't bring about justice in our world and our society. We don't hold it upright when it's, you know, going into chaos. It is God. God is the one that continues to hold your personal world together and our global world together from beginning to end until that final day when he will right all wrongs and he will set things to right. And so we're mindful as we experience injustices, again, big or small, God is ultimately the one that has the authority and the right to set it to rights. But interpersonally, how do we deal with it? Paul says in Romans 12, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. The scriptures are quite clear that when I am wronged, I am not to take vengeance into my own hands. That's not my right. That's not my place. It's the Lord's. Only the Lord has the authority and the knowledge and the power and the ability to right the wrongs, to correct the injustices. And in that, in turn, what the Lord asks me to do is to be something different, to actually, in the midst of injustice, to be a gift giver. Thus, even when I am faced with my enemy, I am to bless them. I am to care for them. So I've got two different pictures here. Of, I think of like polar opposites of how do we respond to injustice. So do you want to, yep, there we go. On the left, we've got a doormat. Someone wrongs me, and I'm like, oh, you know, I'll just let you walk all over me. Take advantage of me. It doesn't matter. Or, you know, hey, this problem is too big. I can't do anything about it. I'm too small. We'll just kind of let it go. This is an under-response to injustice. This is not God's heart. God's heart is for justice. God's heart is for rightness and fairness. We are not to, like, just be doormats. But we can kind of go to that opposite side. There's injustice. I just won't put up a fight. I just won't really speak out for truth or anything like that. I'll just kind of let the world walk all over me. Or then there's the other side, right? There's the Avenger, the Captain America. I will right the wrong. Me or my tribe, we'll make sure we correct or we get back all that was lost or stolen. Or I'm going to make sure that like, I'm defended and made right in this certain situation or circumstance. This is an over-response to injustice. This is where I begin to take what is the Lord's and I begin to act as if I'm the one that gets justice for me or for others. But it's always God that gets justice for them. One, he loves them more, and he loves us more than we love ourselves and we love others. And he's the only one that is able to right the actual wrongs. Our way of walking is neither one of these. It's a gentle response. So what does this look like? In John chapter 8, there's a really interesting, intriguing story where Jesus is with his disciples. He's out in public. He's hanging out with them, teaching, whatever. And all of a sudden, a group of men come with a woman who was just committed adultery. And however it is, she was caught red-handed. And so they bring her and throw her in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, the law of Moses says she is to be stoned to death for her wrong. She's wrong. We've caught her. She's guilty. What do you say? Now, the law of Moses is something that Jesus would have absolutely upheld. In, in, that, in light of the law of Moses, yes, yeah, she absolutely deserved a consequence. And yet, 
the whole situation smells of impropriety. I mean, like, what are these guys doing, these men who grabbed only the woman and in public shame her by throwing her in front of Jesus? Are they not wrong too? What is Jesus to do to them? Well, Jesus could have, as a doormat, said, well, it's not really my place to judge here, guys. This is too big for me. Why don't you go take this up with the authorities? Or he could have gone toe-to-toe with those guys and fought fire with fire. Or he could have spoken to that woman and said, this isn't right. But what does Jesus do? His tact in that moment was to actually, in one fell swoop, lump them all together and say, hey, if you're without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Everyone's like, well... That's not me. I'm not without sin. I can't throw a stone. I can't judge her. It's not my place. And as the story goes, one by one, these men leave till finally it's just Jesus and her. And Jesus says, woman, does anyone condemn you? Does anyone judge you? She says, no. And Jesus says, well, neither do I. Go and leave your life of sin. You see, Jesus was able to, one, uphold the command and truth of God. Adultery is not okay. That's not right. And yet also was able to, at the same time, deliver mercy. Father who delivers mercy. One, setting her with an opportunity to a new life, a new way of living. And for these men, giving the gift of humility, which they much needed. Gentleness, gentleness is not taking on sort of this doormat of passivity or becoming an avenger of injustice. It's recognizing that God equips you and me to be messengers of mercy. God equips us to be messengers of mercy. That is gentleness. And so when we consider maybe like when our kids maybe speak disrespectfully to us if we're parents, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but that's happened a couple of times in the Gillespie household. Our kids speak to mom and dad in ways that they ought not to speak to mom and dad. We could be doormats and say, oh, kids will be kids, you know, they'll grow out of it when they get older, right? We could just kind of dismiss it because you know, conflict with your children is hard. Or we could avenge ourselves. How dare you speak to me that way? Or in some middle road, we give these gentle gifts to our children where we uphold the command of God, you shall honor your father and mother, while at the same time recognizing that in the end, it's God that is going to mature them into the person that God wants them to be. What that looks like, I don't know. There's probably a hundred different ways that that can look. And yet, the correct gift to our children is gentleness right? My little girls uh, came to us this weekend, and they said that there was a, a girl in their classroom that was being bullied and picked on. And, uh, you know, they admitted she's annoying. Like, she's hard to be around. No one wants to sit with her at lunch. She's, like, by herself. And it's hard to be friends with people like that. And yet they also are not comfortable with the fact that their classmates, like, make fun of her. And so they said, here's what we're going to do. And they are talking to me and Allie about their idea of what they're going to do. They said, here's what we're going to do. Well, rather than kind of going toe-to-toe with the bullies, or rather than ignoring the situation, they said, we're going to just sit with her at lunch. Seems like a pretty gentle, gracious response to injustice. You see, for us, it's not exactly how do I get it right or how do I get it wrong. It's in light of God's mercy, in light of his gifts to us. How is it that we, in the face of injustice, not avenge ourselves, but give gifts to those who are around us? with a gentle response. We consider how can you be a messenger of God's justice, mercy, and grace with what you say, with how you say it, and then have matching actions with it. So that's gentleness. All right, let's take up self-control. How can self-control be gift-giving? 
Maybe the question is, how can abstinence be a thing that we give to somebody else? How can my withholding of pleasures, desires that I have, how can that actually be a gift that blesses someone else? Now, when we think about abstinence, we can say, well, we, don't, we abstain from a thing because God says so. God tells us not to do it, therefore we do it. But I think that there's higher virtues, there's higher reasoning, morality that we have, or uh, reasonings, motivations that the scriptures speak to in regards to like, why we abstain from a thing. We abstain from a thing so that we might be more readily able and prepared to serve and give ourselves to others. This word self-control in the New Testament, it's not used often. There's probably reasons for that. But when it's most often employed, it's around the matters of sex and food, which humans maybe at times can overconsume both of those things, inappropriately consume those things. And what the scriptures say is that self-control has a function of serving others, of being ready to serve and give our lives to other people. So I've got two different pictures here for this one. So on the left, we've got Ed Helm from Hangover. Um, if you've ever seen that movie, I wouldn't recommend it. Uh, but basically kind of this licentious, you know, sort of, hey, it's a bachelor's weekend, anything and everything kind of goes, right? I'm a Christian. God saved me by grace. I can kind of do whatever I want. I'm free to live my life, right? I'm free to indulge. Or on the right, we've got, you know, the aesthetic life. You know, hey, I'm going to abstain from everything. I'm going to be virtuous and right my own way. I'm going to make sure that I am above reproach and impropriety. And so we have these two extremes where one person is trying to have such self-control that it, that's the whole point, is just to look a certain way or to abstain from a thing because they have the willpower to do it. On the other end of the spectrum of the Christian life, is, hey, everything's available for me, everything's free to me, I can do whatever I want. And the problem is that both of them can, there's nothing wrong with nuns, by the way, monks and nuns are fine, this is just an illustration, but neither one of those, you know, is, is you know, taking their extreme is really getting at the heart of this gift-giving heart that God has towards us and towards others. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul speaks of being an athlete, an athlete you know, we got some athletes here in the room, right? An athlete eats a certain way and trains a certain way in order to run a race. They live a certain lifestyle so they might run a good race. And what's interesting is that Paul uses this illustration right at the end of kind of like him reminding the Corinthians of his own sort of temperament and way towards them. See, Paul planted the church in Corinthians. The Corinthians, probably most of them owed their salvation in Jesus to Paul's ministry, what Paul said is, hey, I had all these rights as the founding member of this church, as a leader, as the one who is generous towards you, and yet I lay aside my rights so that you might have and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, Paul points out to them, I abstain from this so that you might receive the gift of God. See, Paul made to had self-control that he would then be a true servant of God and a vessel of the gospel to the Corinthian church. And he counted himself as an athlete. You know, I used to be really into squats, squatting, all kinds of squatting, normal squatting, Albanian split squats, sumo squats, box jumps, you know, all that kind of stuff. I wanted like big legs, right? I didn't want to be one of those guys with pencil stick like legs with like a huge upper body. I wanted a big lower body, right? And I was really, really into these very intense leg workouts. And this sounds all fine and good, right? There's nothing inherently wrong with squatting, right? I mean, no one would say, Nick, 
you're kind of off the rocker. I think you're kind of straight away from God's path because you're squatting too much. However, however, here's a problem. I was really into these workouts when my kids were like two to five years old. And if you have two to five-year-olds, they move fast and a lot, and they want you to get on the ground and play with them. And when it's hard to walk for two or three days after these intense workouts, and your kid is like, come and wrestle with me on the ground, and you're like, give me a minute. I'm getting there. Oh, all right, you want to wrestle? And they're, no, let's go play tag. You're like, get a head start. I'll be there in a minute. So I was of no fatherly good. <laughs> I, I couldn't get up and down fast enough to really play with my kids. I was useless to them. It's not about squatting, right? It's what, I'm a father, and if I want to give the gift of playing with my kids and serving them in that way, how can I continue to live this lifestyle if it prohibits me from being a good gift giver? And sex and food prohibit us, can prohibit us. There's nothing necessarily inherently wrong about them. God gave them as gifts, but they can't inhibit us from being good servants to others. The gift of sex is a gift of fidelity. It's a gift of devotion. I'm fully invested in my wife. I've fully given myself to her. She's fully given herself to me. And having other lovers impacts that gift that we give to one another. Having other lovers, whether they're emotional or lust of the mind and heart or relationships that are virtual and on the internet, however forms they might take, those things absolutely taint my gift of fidelity that I'm giving to my spouse. So why do I maintain self-control? It's that I want to give a good gift to her. I've been made for it. God gives himself in fidelity to me. I, in turn, give myself in fidelity to my wife. And sexual impropriety prohibits that. If you're single, I know we've got single people here. If you're single, then you abstain because you're waiting to give that gift for your future spouse. You abstain from sexual immorality so that you would give a good gift for your future spouse who will give yourself in full devotion. And yes, absolutely, the lovers you take on right now impact the love that you'll give in the future. It's the way it is. We're not just body, we're body and soul. And for those of you who might be single and called to a single life for your whole life, your gift of fidelity is to God the Father from beginning to end. And having other lovers outside of God the Father prohibits your ability or taints your ability to give yourself fully in fidelity to God and devotion to Him. Our world says, single people, that if you're not having sex, your life is somehow less. You're missing out on something. It's less full and less joyful. It's, it's less whole. And yet we must remind ourselves that Jesus, our Savior, was single. He was the most joyful, fulfilled, whole human being that ever walked the face of this earth. And he never had a lover. And so for us, we... we give this gift in the context of marriage because that's how God has designed it, and we maintain self-control in our sexuality so that we can give a good gift, whether we give our, are giving ourselves wholly to the Lord or to the one love that God has given us in this life. Food is a gift of a clarity. I had to look this word up because it kind of has fallen out of the use since the 1800s. A clarity. It's cheerful readiness. And food and drink can slow us down at times. There's nothing wrong with eating, right? God's given us food and we're to enjoy it. But sometimes our dieting and our dieting styles, sometimes the amount that we imbibe on an evening prohibits us from being able to be 
ready in conversation or service the next day. If we have a hangover the next day, it's hard to go into work and serve your, your boss and your coworkers well. Am I not right? And so we abstain, we are self-controlled with what we take in, both in food and drink, so that we can be ready when the time is called upon for us to give ourselves to others and be ready to serve them. And, and again, probably having like that fourth cheeseburger in the day is really going to make it hard <laughs> to be ready to serve others. So the big idea, really, that we're kind of boiling down to is this, that God gives you and me the fruits to gift others. These are gifts that are given to us that we would give to others. Therefore, cultivate gentleness and self-control, not for yourself, but for the sake of others. It's for other people. So how do we cultivate these things? Let me just kind of touch on these in closing. So the gift of gentleness, silence and solitude can be very powerful. Anger rises up, right? You usually aren't thinking, you know, and then you like, are like are intentional about becoming, you become angry because something's not right. It's a response. And having time of silence and solitude kind of, kind of cut off from the daily grind and able to be kind of come self-aware of yourself and what you're feeling and why you're feeling those things, what a part of your world has been offended by another party or something you've encountered in this world helps for you to understand what injustice is your heart wrestling with. What part of your world isn't right that you're demanding and expecting to be right? It takes time to wrestle with God over the truth of His place to judge those who have wronged you. Because it's not easy, right? When someone's wronged you, it's painful, it's personal, and it's hard, and justice seems right. It is right. This is not ours to give. And so silence and solitude, in order to become aware of self and become aware of God, allows us then to be gentle in our response. Jesus didn't just respond in this really sticky situation in John 8 just because he did in the moment. He spent lots of time in solitude with the Father, aware of self, aware of God's word, aware of God's control and power that he would then give himself as a gentle responder to injustice. Sabbath keeping helps this. Time spent in worship with the Lord, time cut aside from the daily grind of life in order to be in fellowship with other people and in worship of God helps us grow this fruit of gentleness that we can give to others. Self-control, just to hit on a couple of uh, the different practices we can take up for self-control, fasting. Fasting is a good thing. Intermittent fasting is like a fad, right? I mean, if you're a little bit of a health nut, a little bit like, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to be into intermittent fasting. If you want to trim some of that body fat, you get into intermittent fasting. You abstain from some sort of, you know, meals and things like that. Well, that's like a diet fad for our, our culture that's image conscience. That's not biblical fasting. That's different. Biblical fasting is abstaining from something for the service of another. That in the scriptures, if you particularly want to pay attention to the minor prophets, I mean, they go after God's people for fasting for the wrong reasons. They fast for self, not for others. That true fasting is fasting that actually benefits others who are poor and impoverished and marginalized. So when I abstain from a thing, I might also consider not just does it like help me like lose a few pounds, but am I fasting in order that I might be able to then in turn give generous gifts and help meet the needs of those who are in poverty? That's true godly biblical fasting. And 
thinking about and considering how is it that I practice that type of fasting does great benefit. Maybe part of that fasting, maybe, this is my opinion, maybe part of that fasting is who do we have in our home? And maybe it's that we don't just have our friends over at our house that we feed, but we have maybe some more undesirable people in our house that we feed and have fellowship with. Maybe that's the godly fast. I don't know. Lastly is confession. Because we sin. Because we fall short. Because we overindulge. Because we don't always crucify our passions and desires and we allow those things to rule us. That we must confess. We confess to the Lord. We confess to one another. Because we do. We continue to struggle with our own flesh. We continue to live in these weak bodies. And we just give grace and understanding to one another that when we fail, we come to the Lord, we remind ourselves of the cross of Jesus, and then we remind, us, remind ourselves that it is He who, just like what that woman says, I do not judge you. Go and leave your life of sin. He says that same thing to us over and over again. And so as we mess up, as we make mistakes, let us be quick to confess to the Lord and to one another ways that we fall short, that we might, in fidelity and cheerful readiness, be ready to give ourselves to others.